Does that slide make anyone else hungry? I was just looking at the fruit up there and thinking I would like to have a slice of that. Well, I'm not sure. We may be a shouting church. What do you think? What do you think, Ronnie? Shouting church, maybe? I came pretty oppressed this morning. Anyone else? Just out that Sunday morning blues and just, I don't know what it was. So that was like primal scream therapy this morning. Shouting, my voice is raspy now, and I feel much better. Before we look at part two of Elijah's experiences in the book of 1 Kings, I've asked Tony Brady to come up and share briefly, and I gave him a lot of time to prepare. What, maybe 30 minutes? I just told him a few minutes ago. Uh, Tony and I talked a few weeks ago, and if you remember, Steve Jarek came up here. He got pulled out of the bathroom um, a few weeks back to come and share about what God was stirring inside of him. He shared briefly. Tony and some of the other guys came forward. And I talked to Tony after that Sunday, and he was sharing some things with me about things that are rumbling around inside of him regarding mentoring and discipling. So I asked Tony to share briefly about that. I was told I had 45 minutes. Seconds. Well, I, I am thankful for the opportunity to share. I really am. And I'm really, really thankful for the courage of those three men to pray for me. So we broke away from our men's prayer right here. And... Jeff Ramsdale grabbed me and said, I think there's more, and I, I was willing to hear what he had to say. And those three guys just started to pour into me what God was sharing with them about me. And, and I'm happy and thankful that they did, because no matter what the world says about you, the only thing that really matters is what God says about you and how he sees you. And I just feel like men every day, are, we're getting our identity stolen little by little by little. And what the Lord really put on my heart is how to be pro-man, and it doesn't mean you're anti-woman. So how do we stand up in this body, and how do we share with each other our, the overwhelming power of love that he has for his sons and it's an emotion that's really difficult for a lot of men to accept but those three guys just started praying the love of God over me the love of God the love of God the love of God until I was snapped in half I stood up for the first part and then I fell down for the second half and I just caught on fire I just started I was burning hot and what God can do for you in 15 seconds is more than he can give you in eight semesters of theology school or, or every book on the shelf of Mardell. And that's what I want. And I just know, I know I'm not the only one in this congregation that just says, hey, I need the rust blasted off. I need an episode of American Restoration right here inside of me. And you don't want to be handed a book from Mardell and said, hey, read that and I'll touch base with you. You want the Holy Spirit to come and just blast you. And, that's a, the, the, and those three guys were very courageous to just continue to pray over me until they were empty and I was done. I want you to share, though, you also told me you've been coaching baseball for 11 years. And so you're freed up from that. Yes. Maybe. 
and now you get to pour into other young men. Just tell me what's going on with with regard to that. Well, you kind of have to bloom where you're planted. And I love, you know, everything about the body of Christ. We all have our own position. And And I love, I love young men. I love young men. And, and being in a dugout with guys that are struggling with their identity and their truth was my happy place. And I, I just am called to that. And, I, and, and that's my call. That doesn't have to be your call. But, and that's what makes the body so great is he has all of us working together for his kingdom. But for me, it's men. I just get super excited about that. Lord, we celebrate what you're doing in Tony and among many of us here, and we ask that you would take this fire and pass it on to the next generation. Teach us how to mentor and raise up leaders to multiply, to disciple, to make disciples, Jesus. It doesn't have to be that hard. Take that fire that's in Tony and disseminate it through the church. Amen. Thanks, Tony. <clears throat> I love it. The Lord uh, said power to the people long before anyone else did. So power to the people, right? That's where, who's the priests? First Peter says, who are the priests in the New Testament? We are. Therefore, who's the ministry? Who's doing the ministry? Who are the ministers of this church? You are, right? Tony is in the dugout. Alan Melissa King, I almost pulled you up here this Sunday, maybe next Sunday. The ministers of this church. Um, our Lord is on mission with Jesus, and we partner with him as he is establishing his kingdom in the lives of people everywhere. We're fueled by love here. It it's come, comes up over and over again. Tony reminded us everything we do around here, worship, formation, the offering, mission, is rooted in the love of God. That's why we're here this morning, is to get under the waterfall of God's love. If we're not doing that, we're doing something else other than New Testament church. So everything here is rooted and aimed at experiencing the love of God. Prayer is a big part of this. So we're having a season of focus on prayer. Prayer is a vital part of who we are and what we do here. So we're focusing in this current series on prayer and there's always more to learn about prayer. Last week, we looked at 1 Kings 18, and we saw Elijah battling the prophets of Baal. And it was graphic. Lots of things going on there. The fire of the Lord fell, and it was a powerful story. Today, the story continues. We're going to have part two from that Elijah narrative. And so the story today is going to talk about the drought ending that we spoke of, and then Elijah battles Jezebel yet again, and then Elijah goes on to encounter the Lord in prayer in a place of great weakness and brokenness. As we do this this morning, as we reflect together on this story, we expect to encounter God. Did you know this alleviates a lot of the pressure on a teacher or preacher? This is the word of God. I'm inviting us to reflect on this together. I don't have to do anything. I open the scriptures. It is the eternal, powerful, transformative word of God. My goal is to walk us through it a little bit. 
and get out of the way. The word of God is, is like a fire. It's like a hammer that shatters the rock around our hearts. So I'm inviting us this morning to meditate together on this word about Elijah and his intimate interaction with the Lord in prayer. So I want to draw our attention in a few minutes to four experiences in prayer that Elijah has with the Lord. And each one illuminates something about who we are, our weak human nature. It illuminates something about God, the way God deals with us. And it also speaks to the power of prayer. We're going to read this story. Amanda and I have been talking about this. Preaching a longer narrative is difficult. We're not used to it. How long is our attention span? Maybe two seconds? So the thought of reading a narrative is work, but it's good work. Again, it is the word of God. This story was 900 years before Christ. So we're reading something that's 3,000 years old that the people of God have read aloud. When they gather together, the Jews would read these stories. When the early Christians gathered in homes, sheltered from persecution, they read stories like this. Oftentimes they would stand up and read them. They would pass the scroll around and read it. So it is difficult, I know. As I read this story, I'm, I kind of space out even as I'm reading it. So I'm inviting us to focus our attention on this. Try to follow the different scenes, the different shifts in the narrative. We're going to read 1 Kings 18. And then we're going to read into 19. 1 Kings 19. So the end of the story, for those of you that weren't here for part one, again... Elijah's been on Mount Carmel battling the prophets and now at 1 Kings 18, 41 through 46. It's really the climax of this story. The prophets of Baal are overturned and Elijah's getting ready to go up on to the mountain and look out over the Mediterranean Sea and he calls the people to look for something. The drought is about to end. And then the story shifts in a way that you wouldn't expect. And that's what we're going to drill down into. So I'm going to read beginning at 1841 through the end there. And then I'm going to plow through 19 verses 1 through 14. And then we'll go back and look at it together. So Lord, we ask you to speak to us through your holy, powerful, transformative word. And Jesus, we say that you are the word. So we invite you to come and cause our hearts to burn as we interact with you through scripture. Amen. So beginning at verse 41, Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of rushing rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink. Elijah went up to the top of Carmel. There he bowed himself down upon the earth and put his face between his knees. He said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. He went up and looked and said, there is nothing. Then he said, go again seven times. At the seventh time, he said, look, a cloud no bigger than a person's hand is rising out of the sea. Then he said, go say to Ahab, harness your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. In a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy rain. Ahab rode off and went to Jezreel. But the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, 
He girded up his loins and ran in front of Ahab down to the entrance of Jezreel. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how the Lord, how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then Elijah was afraid. He got up and fled for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a solitary broom tree. He asked that he might die. It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. Then Elijah lay down under the broom tree and fell asleep. Suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, get up and eat. He looked, and there at his head was a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came a second time, touched him, and said, get up and eat. Otherwise, the journey will be too much for you. He got up and ate and drank. Then he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. At that place, he came to a cave and he spent the night there. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, what are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. He said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind, so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then there came a voice to him that said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, throw down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. As we ponder this, again, our aim is to reflect on Elijah's experiences of God and the kind of prayer expressed in some of these different scenes, these moments. So I want us to take a look at the first one. It's found in 18, chapter 18, verses 41 through 46. The first experience is victory. This is where the saying mountaintop experience comes from. Elijah was on the mountaintop and he calls down fire from heaven. So it's a moment of victory and it was a prayer for miracles and the Lord heard. 
This is a rather cryptic passage. It's difficult. There's a lot going on. Amanda and I were talking about this over the weekend. What exactly is happening here? And I was reading into it and looking at what some great people have said over the last couple thousand years, church historians and commentators on scripture and all kinds of rich things, but I'm going to touch on it briefly so we can really spend time in chapter 19 here. But essentially what's happening here is Elijah hears something in the spirit. He's a prophet. And so he's having vision and and spiritual sensation of what's going on here. And he goes and bows himself, if you look at verse 42, in humility before the Lord. He knows that something is coming. They've been in a drought for three and a half years. You can imagine what that's like in the ancient world. No rain, no food. Three and a half years this has been going on. And again, the message was, Baal is no God at all. If you think that Baal is the storm God, we're going to shut up the heavens. If you think Baal brings fertility to your crops, we're going to shut up the heavens. We're going to show who the true God is. And so, again, part of this victory is Elijah demonstrating that Yahweh alone is the victorious God. So at verse 43 here, Elijah tells his servant to go and look over the sea. You can imagine this. Out over the Mediterranean, they're about 1,500 feet up, and they're looking out over it, and there's nothing except this little tiny cloud the size of a person's fist. He tells them to do this how many times? Seven. Where have we heard seven before? Jews did this. They took numbers mattered. The first time we hear seven is in Genesis 1 and 2, right? So what is being suggested here in the text is the creator is getting ready to act. The one who spoke and creation came into being is getting ready to speak again over the Mediterranean Sea. And you can see that little tiny cloud out there. A big rain is coming. It's a small sign of something big. And then Elijah does something here in verse 44. He gives a gracious warning to an evil king. Why in the world would he tell him? He's basically giving him a hurricane warning. King Ahab, you better get out ahead of this. Otherwise, you're going to be buried in the mud. It's going to be drastic. So he's giving him a warning of the rain that's coming. And this small cloud at verse 45 becomes huge and the clouds and the wind come. Remember that reference to the wind there. And so the the end of the drought, three and a half year drought and famine occurs right there. And what happens at verse 46? Elijah puts on his Brooks running shoes and takes off. So he basically takes up his garment that he's wearing that's a robe, tucks it into his belt, In other words, he rolls up his pants and takes off running. He runs about 15 miles. So who says that Old Testament prophets can't bust it out? 15 miles of sprinting, and I guess the anointing on him helped quite a bit. So let's look at uh, chapter 19, 1 to 4 here, a second experience. Again, important to just train our minds to be able to follow a story like this. Beautiful things. This is how the 
The ancient Israelites taught their children through stories like this. We're into linear things, aren't we? Oftentimes I'm like, give me an outline. I want five points. The Jews told stories. The early Christians told stories and drew people in. So we see at verse 19, 1 to 4, a second experience that Elijah has, and it's fear. It's a prayer for help. And this section details his fear, his weakness, his depression. I don't know about you, but this is surprising to me. You would think one of the greatest prophets, the greatest stories in the entire Old Testament, and how does he follow this great victory? He gets depressed. We'll see that he actually becomes suicidal. This is no shallow depression that we're talking about. At verse 1, what happens? Jezebel threatens Elijah. She sends one of her messengers. Says, basically, I'm going to kill you. You've got 24 hours. So on the heels of this great victory, at verse 3, we see that Elijah, the great prophet that he is, who's just overturned Jezebel and Ahab's whole religious system, defeated the prophets of Baal, called down fire from heaven. He succumbs to fear. He runs for his life. And he runs all the way to this place at the southern edge of the desert, 100 miles. We might think that's not very possible, but actually in the ancient world, you could run, you could move swiftly between 12 and 16 miles a day pretty easily, maybe even more at times. So he goes to the wilderness at verse 4 here, and it's just the story is telling us he is really wimping out here. He's getting far outside of her reach, and he's going further and further, and he's going deeper and deeper into fear and depression. This makes me like Elijah. I don't know about you. He comes into this wilderness, this desert place. And it's interesting, again, the story is signaling to us, again, many things have happened in this area. 500 years earlier, Moses came to this same region, to this same desert. And so the story is signaling that. Oftentimes, the Lord shapes us in the desert. Is that right? The Lord has shaped prophets and saints. You're a saint. You're a holy one. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Lord oftentimes takes us into places of pain and hiddenness where we're overlooked. Does anyone know I exist here? Hey, and the Lord's at work. Can we learn to embrace that? This is an ongoing life challenge that I experience. Can you embrace the desert? The desert seasons when you're pulled away and no one even seems to acknowledge that you exist. And yet God is secretly at work inside of you in a way that perhaps God couldn't work in any other situation. Elijah is experiencing that. He says at verse 4 again, he's sitting under this solitary broom tree. Think about it. Moses encountered the burning bush there 500 years later, 500 years earlier, and here he's also by a bush, but he's hiding out. And he says, I've had enough, Lord. 
take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Essentially, he's saying there, I, I thought that perhaps my great ministry would turn the people back to you, and it didn't work out. I'm no better than the people before me. I'm ordinary. I'm broken. I'm susceptible. I'm depressed. You see it right here. Take my life. He's experiencing suicidal thoughts. He's human. Does this surprise you a little bit? Does it surprise you? Maybe you've read this story before, maybe countless times, but I want us to sit with it. This is deep. This is painful. From Elijah. We think of him as the model of miracle-working prayer and power, don't we? Elijah, he could call down fire and rain. He's also the model for weakness and depression and dealing with suicidal thoughts. James 5 says this. You can write it down, look at it later, but in the New Testament, the author James, the disciple, says something about Elijah. I want you to listen to it. James 5, 16 and 17 says this, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous person is powerful and effective. Listen to this at verse 17. Elijah was a human being like us. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, as we're seeing here in this passage here, and the heaven gave rain and the earth yielded its harvest. So James 5 looks back over the life of Elijah and acknowledges, yes, he's a model for miracle-working prayer. He, He prayed and the heavens opened, but he's a human being like us. I love this book. The scriptures are filled with stories like this, broken, vulnerable people, like you and me, and the power of God resides in us. We're those clay pots with something eternal and transformative and glorious. The presence of the Holy Spirit taking residence in us. Let's look at the third moment here in the narrative. At verse 5, we see... A third experience Elijah has is provision, and it's answered prayer. May not be the answer he was looking for. You have those moments? Let's look at his unforeseen answer to prayer. At verse 5, Elijah lays down under this broom broom tree. It's basically a 12-foot tree, like a a skinny juniper out there. There's barely enough shade. He's laying down, and what's he do in verse 5? He sleeps. He eats. He does this two times. Did you know that these two verbs, eating and sleeping, are spiritual practices? Some of you are looking forward to both of these things this afternoon. Are you not? You're saying, I might... Mike is, this afternoon, I feel really spiritual. I'm going to eat, and then I'm going to sleep. 
We can eat and sleep in the presence of God to the glory of God. And that is precisely the answer prayer that comes, the answered prayer that comes to Elijah. He's praying, he's pouring out his heart, and the Lord says, I'm going to send an angel to remind you to get some rest. He may have been a little stubborn, so he had to be reminded two times. Take a nap. Eat. This can be difficult to hear. Sometimes I want to hear something more rigorous. There have been times where I'm coming through a rough season, and I'll say, Lord, will you speak to me? Will you do this? And will you? And the Lord said, go take a nap. What? You need rest. So as I've gotten older, my body talks to me, but I've also learned to listen to the Lord. There is something deeply spiritual about taking care of our bodies, eating, and that's what Elijah's provision is for him. The cave that Elijah comes to here, it's a profound moment in the, the narrative. The number 40 means many things. He's traveling for 40 days, and he comes to this place, Horeb, the mountain of God, in verse 8. That's Mount Sinai. So again, we have an allusion to Moses and the early Israelites coming to this, this place. It's interesting, at verse 9 here, you look. Inaccurately, it, it says that at that place he came to a cave. The Hebrew actually says the cave. He came to the cave that was referenced in Exodus 33. Do you remember a few weeks ago we were looking at Moses and his prayer to encounter the glory of God? And part of that narrative was Moses being warned the Lord is coming in great power. And so he's tucked into that cleft of the rock. He's tucked into a cave. Guess where Elijah finds himself? In that cave. So the story takes a turn into this cave. And what's he do at verse, verse 9? He spends the night there. He's in darkness. He's alone. It's a place of great mystery, a place of protection and hiddenness. Like the desert, caves are places of formation, aren't they? Some of you have spent time not only in the desert, but a cave. You're not only out with sand in your mouth, the sun beating down on you, but you're also doubly hidden. And so the cave, the wilderness, the desert, these are places of spiritual formation for us. And scripture teaches that over and over again, doesn't it? Moses, Elijah, the prophet Isaiah, Jesus. We've learned to embrace these places. And it becomes a place of preparation for revelation that's coming. I loved these stories in college. I remember age 18, 19, reading some of these stories for the first time. And I was an athlete at TCU. I was the toughest guy on the football team, a place kicker. And I was so hungry for God. God had awakened something in me at age 17. And so here I was at TCU, and I would read passages like this, and I would say, Lord, where's my cave? I want to find a cave. I want to learn what this means to hide and to hear your voice and to be in silence. I could only find one place, and it was in our athletic dorm at TCU, and it was a stairwell with roof access. 
and I would go up into this stairwell, and sometimes I would go up there at the end of the day, at the end of classes or early in the morning, and I remember one time early in the morning going up there, and I didn't know what to do. Took my Bible up there, would read something, and then I would sit in darkness and say, Lord, speak. Your servant is listening. I'm here. And not much happened ever except one morning. I heard noise coming up the stairwell. Here I was in my cave seeking the Lord, and two tennis players were coming up the stairwell and came upon me. And it was about 6.30 in the morning. It was weird. It was a very awkward cave moment. They looked at each other, they looked at me, and they saw my Bible on the ground, and they kind of did a 180 and walked out. But I was there in my cave trying to seek the Lord in childlikeness, and I don't know what they were going up there to do. I'm guessing they probably had something to smoke, is my guess. I was smoking the word up there. So my point in all that is to embrace the cave. Find a place. You know what? They sell silence now. Did you know that? You can pay money and go get in a capsule and sit in silence. We don't have to do that. Find a place. Sit in your car. And I'm talking absolute silence. Try this this week. 30 seconds. Sit in your car. Close your eyes. Silence. The text says that that's when the voice of the Lord came to him. It wasn't flashy. It wasn't powerful. It wasn't in the wind or the earthquake or the fire, these great theophanies. It's what Bible commentators call these manifestations. It wasn't in that. It was in the still place, silence, quietness. The first The fourth experience here is revelation. That's where I am. Sorry, I got a little, I'm in the cave right now. (laughs) Was I on four, four already? Okay, thank you. I'm caught up in this, I love it. So the fourth is revelation, prayer and silence. He's in the wilderness, he's in the cave. I wanna challenge you today to take this passage right here and to break it into four pieces, all right? You could take one section each day. You could take the section on victory. You could take the section on fear and weakness. You could take the section on provision and revelation and to ask the Lord to speak to you through this story. How does that sound? And then I'm going to ask you to do that, to try to find a place of absolute silence and stillness and quietness. Is that threatening to anyone? Does that feel a little ominous to think about? Lately, I've been going into the garage. I did this last night. I went out there to get a seltzer. It was pitch black in the garage, and I just stood there for about 30 seconds. And there's something healing and powerful and therapeutic about silence. Try to cultivate a little bit of silence. Say, Lord, speak to me. Heal me in the silence. God is in the silence. It doesn't have to be anything flashy. It wasn't for Elijah. It's actually, God is in the silence. God is in the desert. 
God is in the barrenness. God is in these places. And oftentimes we try to pray it away or push it away. And the Lord is there. So, Lord, we we sit before you in silence. I want to take one minute, and I want us to just sit. We can close our eyes, and I want us to sit in silence with the power of this story here. Then we'll turn and have some ministry time. The Lord's Scripture says that you are in your holy temple, and all the earth is silent before you. So we, we quiet ourselves, Lord.